Hello, everyone, and welcome to season four of The Transatlanticist at the American Centrum in Hamburg. I'm your host, Andrew Sola. The year 2022 was a difficult year for many reasons, so I decided to kick off season four on a positive note by thinking about how we can improve our lives through improved forms of democratic participation. On a personal note, I came to this topic because of the general sense of alarm and anxiety about the health of Western democracies. In the U.S., the political climate is still highly divisive. Extremism has become normalized, and even political violence has become normalized. Political violence, of course, is the scourge of democratic societies. Europe also has seen a rise in anti-democratic forces. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has led many politicians to frame the conflict as a global one between authoritarianism and democracy. So by this thinking, democracy is being attacked internally, but also externally. These are dangerous times for democracy indeed. But maybe I thought, just maybe there was a way forward, a way to think beyond division beyond corruption, beyond apathy, beyond cynicism, and maybe a way forward that both the left and the right can agree on. As it turns out, there is such a way, and we can see it in the many new participatory democracy initiatives that have been sprouting up throughout the world, in Europe, the United States, South America, Australia, and beyond. And who better to teach us more about new democracy initiatives than the A-team of new democracy? Antoine Vernia and Ahmed Radi Taleb. Antoine Vernia is co-director of Mission Publique. His work focuses on exploring new ways of decision-making that are fit to tackle the challenges of the 21st century. Specifically, he is working with coalitions of actors to design and implement so-called deliberations, processes in which people come together, discuss, and inform themselves and produce collective recommendations or decisions. Ahmed Radi Taleb has been researching and writing about citizen-centered democratic processes, that is to say democracy, since 2013. He is a language teacher, a PhD candidate in political theory, and contributor to Equality by Lot, an international forum on the political potential of sortition. All right, so it's really early for me. I'm recording this at uh, 6.30 in the morning in the States. And Ahmed, you hit me with a very difficult word to start, namely sortition. So do you just want to start by defining sortition? briefly, but also tell me how you got interested in the subject of sortition. Okay, yeah. Um, sortition just means uh, using lotteries or, uh, or random selection 
to choose participants in something. It could be anything. This is how we select trial juries in the U.S. and in a few other countries. But I think the U.S. is almost unique uh, in the extent to which we use them. Yeah, of course, there's there's some filtering mechanisms that are used and there's a debate as to whether those should exist or not and which ones there are, but more or less it's it's a kind of random selection. I got interested in this. Actually, this was during a long time ago, 20 years ago about. This was during the Bush era. I witnessed Bush Jr. or Bush Sr.? Bush Jr., 2004 or five is when I started mm-hmm. thinking about this, because I witnessed both, uh, at that time I had was spending a little bit of time in Paris, but I witnessed both in, uh, in America and in uh, France, but all over the world, what was described, universally described as the largest public protest of all time, global protest, which was against the Iraq war before it started, and yet the war happened anyway. So I started thinking about, well, what? Why, why do representatives not represent? And uh, because I had some mathematical background, I started thinking about, well, wait, why do we select at all if we want to represent? How can you select and represent at the same time? So I approached it from, from, from that perspective. But uh, I, um, you know, sort of, put it aside for a while and you know it was just okay we need something more representative is how i sort of filed it and then by chance i served at it on a trial jury in rural wisconsin this was in uh 2013 or 14 i want to say it was that really cold winter that we had in the midwest in 2014 the so-called polar vortex winter I remember the judge making a comment about how thick the ice was that year, and it was going to be a good season to take your car out on the lake um, because the ice was three feet thick. (laughs) So I was just, I was blown away. Uh, Things that I had only thought about theoretically, and I had maybe discussed with other people interested in democracy, you know, sort of an online forum. I saw it in practice that, you know, these uh, 12, actually were 13 randomly selected people. And I thought for sure that I was going to be booted by one of the lawyers because I have some legal background, but nobody asked me the question as to what I studied. I'm like, great. Okay. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> if you don't ask me, I'm not going to tell you because they would have invariably kicked me off. But I was just surprised by how well people worked together. We had people who were like uh, raised cattle. There, there were people who were retired teachers. There was music teachers. There was managers at factories. You're saying what it was else? a more representative just, sample of, of the, the actual population of rural Wisconsin than, yeah. say, the elected representatives in the legislature. Very much so, yeah. And um, uh, racially, too, it was pretty diverse. Ahmed, so that experience taught you what? Uh, uh, How reasonable normal people are. And (laughs) because, uh, I mean, one of the things I'd like to bring up later, uh, which I call political agoraphobia, um, I think it's sort of the, it's a kind of um, 
I, I, I want to say Western disease, but it's maybe even a global disease, uh, being afraid of politics, being afraid of the people. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very underestimated sort of underlying structure in, in, uh, in, uh, in our political world. Um, a lot of things that, that we think are you know, true by some kind of reason or argument are true based on a kind of visceral or learned agoraphobia, uh, being afraid of the people. And I didn't see this, you know, I didn't see anyone being unreasonable. I didn't see anyone being dumb. I, you know, I just saw people trying to listen to other people and trying to come to the best solution we could come to knowing that we're fallible. And for me, I think that's ultimately what democracy is about. So this model, this model that you saw working pretty well in, a, in the legal system, you think can be expanded to other political matters, which takes me to Antoine. You hit me with a very difficult word too, not sortition, but deliberations. And that's uh, another long word that I think you could briefly define. So can you talk about what you mean by deliberation? And also tell me how you got interested into this this subject, and maybe just give me a brief introduction to your institute there, the Mission Publique. Yes, so actually it's a it's a straightforward story that uh, starts in 1998, as I was uh, studying political sciences in the south of France in Toulouse, and um, one of the main questions for me was okay, how do we improve democracy? <laughs> Because I, I was I had the same feeling. It's um, the parliament in France was not representative of the population, so I was struggling with that and studied classically by saying, "Okay, we have to reform the parties, we have to reform the election." And one day I stumbled upon a, a conference invitation called Stokocracy, uh, Stokocracy, <laughs> so Stokos from uh, random selection and Kratos power. And it was done by a, a guy um, under a pseudonym, and his proposal was to replace the French parliament by um, a group of randomly selected uh, French people. And he was uh, saying all the advantages uh, that uh, that could have. And, and then I said, okay, that's, that's the thing. And that's what I want to work on. So I did my final exam uh, in, in 2003. I wrote it on, uh, on random selection in politics. And at that time, I was 23, so it was called the Democratic Stochocracy, so that was the, the name of it. And I found it back actually a week ago, because I moved a week ago, and I found that text back, so it's 20 wow. years old. And it concludes with the words, with, with following two sentences. The one is, uh, we can be modest and say that random selection politics can complement liberal democracy. Or we can be very ambitious and say, stockocrats from all over the world unite. <laughs> and that was the, the final one of it. Um, and, and then, since then, I'm, I'm working on it. So after, after that, I did my PhD on random selection in politics with a, a view uh, on, on um, models using it. So those, that deliberation, I will come to that. And then at the end of my PhD, I started to work for Mission Publique. And Mission Publique is a company. We are based in France, Germany, and Belgium, but we are active globally. We are 18 to 20 people, and we work exactly on that. We work on designing, implementing uh, such processes in which randomly selected citizens gather, uh, have the time to discuss uh, topics of public interest, and uh, formulate recommendations, 
that they give back to decision makers. And that's what I've uh, been doing since uh, now 12 years at Mission Public with that wish to improve democracy and to, to understand how that theory of uh, random selection can be actually implemented in reality. And it, it's a trajectory, it's a, it's a path, and it's sometimes called uh, deliberation. Uh, that's the, the term. There is a, another term that is often used to refer to it are many publics, uh, which means that through random selection, you, you choose that uh, uh, kind of a mini part of the, the general public, but it is representative of that public. And the most uh, known model at the moment are called citizens' assemblies, uh, and there are many of them uh, around the world. Uh, we can come back to that, and we, I have a chance to, to be working on those citizens' assemblies uh, at all levels. Maybe one comment, Andrew, on, on the beginning on, on democracy in the year 22. I think that's a bit the, the curse of democracy, that... Um, that it's it's uh, it's never ending. So you you can always um, it's it's always in crisis in in a way. So we always have to to invent it. And I think um, you were you were talking about the democratic energy to start that year. I think that's both the a bit the curse and, and the chance we have with democratic systems that they they have that capacity also to always be reinvented. They are, they are not fixed in times. If you if you think about it, and that's a, the chance that what we are working on and trying to to achieve that. Yeah, and I think that's a really important general point for me, too. I think it's human nature to want to have closure or finality, like we finally solved this problem. We finally solved immigration or healthcare or global peace. But in a, in a planet of whatever, three and a half, four billion people now, there's going to be a lot of different perspectives and they're going to change a lot as technology changes, as new things happen. Climate change will no doubt change how we think about democracy as well. So I agree that it's better to think about democracy as a, as a continually unfinished process rather than an endpoint we can get to. But I just want to talk about one specific issue at the start that I, that I had the first time I started looking at some of some of these ideas with sortition. And Ahmed, it's something that you said about the fact that you thought your jury was more reasonable and sensible. And, and there's a counter tradition in philosophy that is that we should not trust the common person. If we give too much power to the common person, the common person will make terrible mistakes. And I remember there's a hysterical Simpsons episode where the head of a big motor company was like meets Homer and says, ah, you are the perfect common American man. You design the next car for me. So Homer Simpson designs a car and it's the worst car ever designed. It looks great, but it's like dumb. Uh, it's, and it's hysterical, but <laughs> connecting the Homer Simpson example to the British people, I'm thinking of Brexit. Brexit is, for me, the most recent example of how a participatory democratic action, namely the Brexit referendum, gave the British people who were mostly uninformed about the consequences the power to change the course of their country. And basically everyone on the planet, except for a small sliver of, of hardcore Brexiteers, recognize that that was a catastrophic decision. So can you just talk a little about both of you first, Ahmed, and then Antoine, about uh, how you would respond to the criticism that the common man maybe isn't the best person to make decisions? Yeah. 
there are a couple of things going on there. First, we're talking about groups, not individuals. So, you know, the Homer Simpson example, while funny, it, it doesn't, uh, it's not really what we're talking about here. And uh, we're usually talking about groups large enough so that, you know, individual idiosyncratic preferences uh, don't rule. But I think what most people in this space, and I'm sure Antoine will say something similar to this, don't, wouldn't recognize a, a referendum as deliberative democracy. It might be part of it, but it couldn't be it. And the reason is the media landscape we have is, is not designed around public debate. It's either designed around getting clicks or it was um, even be before the internet. I don't want to be one of these people that's going to blame everything on the internet and social media. I think that's problematic in itself. But we've had um, a couple of decades, um, actually since the, the 80s probably, of the consolidation of media. So there's fewer and fewer points of view articulated and uh, a handful of views, usually only two or three, are continuously amplified, either because they represent power or because they're um, easier to fit in, in, in a soundbite. So people who advocate for more democracy, and uh, since this is a, a podcast out of Germany, uh, there is a, an organization called Mea Demokratie, um, which has been advocated for just that. And they're also involved in some of these citizen assemblies that have been happening in uh, Germany. Say, uh, no, we need actual deliberation, which means we need both time and space, both the information to make decisions and the and the space and the time to be able to make those. And so uh, I'm sure when Antoine describes some of the processes that, that he has helped conduct or when we uh, talk about some of the, the recent examples, uh, we'll see that these citizens are usually given many, many hours to discuss together. Probably the most famous example in recent times is the French Climate Assembly, which met is it 10 weekends uh, or nine or even 10 weekends um, over an entire year? Part of that was pre-lockdown. Part of it was after lockdown. So I think half their uh, meetings were in person and then half their meetings occurred online. And they were presented with experts for and against and in between as many issues as possible. Um, of course, it, it was far from perfect, but... The idea is if you plan and organize these things in advance, then you can provide the information and the space and the facilitation to have to have debate. So you wouldn't have uh, one Homer, you'd have 200 people who <laughs> uh, may or not be like Homer. The, the, and the entire town of Springfield. <laughs> there you go. You have the entire town of Springfield and with some kind of professional facilitation that allows the sharing of the space. So you don't have, you know, the person who says they're a lawyer dominating the conversation, for example, uh -huh. um, or, or the older white man dominating the conversation and so forth. So, so what you're saying, Ahmed, here is that Brexit, and you said this at the start, Brexit featured one of many aspects of what you would consider to be a strong participatory deliberative process to leave the EU. And we can't consider referenda or one referendum as being 
you would argue, an appropriate process. That's that's what I get out of this, and I, I see your point now. Antoine, do you, do you want to make any comments about Brexit and what this should teach us about exclusively using a referendum to decide major issues? Yeah, so maybe first, uh, first comment is um, on, on the logic behind the referendum. It's an adversary logic because you have a, normally you have a yes, no, it means that you have to um, to be on one side. It means that you have to simplify. It means that you, you need to have an adversary process, which is also exactly what we have in elections uh, in liberal democracies, where you are kind of obliged to create division in order to create a difference, in order to get uh, elected or, or win or lose. And that's all terms that are very interesting uh, because they are uh, much less present in deliberative processes. Uh, where it's not about uh, winning, losing, but about considering, about uh, weighing, about assessing and prioritizing. So I think this is very interesting in terms of what a referendum is based upon. But it has a strength because, of course, a, a referendum um, through that adversary process is something quite definitive or quite powerful because the people spoke. <laughs> so it's very difficult to, to come back. And of course, the, the question is, how do we combine? And there is, for example, very good experiences in the US, in Oregon, when they, there is a, a referendum uh, or a citizen's initiative that goes to, to the ballot, what they do is they integrate a citizen's jury, so that kind of a deliberative process. So you have 25 um, citizens from Oregon that come together, work five days on the topic of the referendum, assess and hear pros and cons, and they make a vote uh, with a recommendation. And this is put as part of the information that is distributed to all voters in Oregon for them to inform them on what ordinary citizens, other uh, homers and other marches, uh, have, uh, have uh, thought about uh, that referendum when they take time to think about it. And I think that's the most interesting part about deliberation is what people think when they think, when they take that time to think. And that is um, very interesting. So referendum has a, has a strong power. It's something very, very useful too, but uh, it's a question of combination of a register of democracy, kinds of democracies. So that's the first comment I would do. The second one is when we uh, talk about referendum, what do we compare it to? Because if you, as you, you were saying, we, um, they, they may have um, many <laughs> comment that it was a dumb decision. So now if we take a, a, a normal parliament in a normal democracy, how many of those decisions are dumb decisions? And, and I think that's the interesting part because, because then we, or if you take a, a group of experts, how many uh, of those are going to, to come out with uh, what could be coined as dumb decisions? Uh, and we know in the history that uh, some experts have uh, had the, the capacity to take dumb decisions. I don't say that uh, ordinary citizens never never take dumb decisions, but, but the question is, what are you comparing to? Um, and that that's, uh, puts it in perspective. That would be my two comments. Can I jump in on the on the CIRs, the Citizens Initiative Reviews that Antoine brought up? So what uh, this group of roughly 20, uh, give or take, randomly selected citizens would do in Oregon is write a recommendation that would go into the voters' handbook two weeks before the election. And not only would it say, we, uh, we recommend this by this vote, you know, 18 versus two, but here are the pros we see, and here are the cons that we see, and here's the basis of our decision. 
you don't see this in regular parliamentary democracy, and you wouldn't see this in a referendum either. You would only see the yes votes and the no votes and which side won. Unfortunately, although in theory, parliamentary democracy involves debate, in practice, that really doesn't happen, at least in the United States, because decisions are made in committees and within parties and in closed doors. And what we see uh, on C-SPAN, for example, is just the the final results or just the final vote. Right. So thank you for that. I, I was trying to connect two Homer Simpson-esque catastrophic decisions, and now I have three. Um, we have Brexit. Ahmed, you started with the, the war in Iraq, and I just quickly Googled some important information about this, namely that there was opposition amongst representatives in Congress to the war, but there was more U.S. public opposition. So I think 77, what does it say here? Uh, 77 senators voted yes, 23 voted no against authorizing the war in Iraq. But the American public at the time was much more closely divided against it. And this is another decision. Had the people had more of a say, maybe there would have been some more resistance to go to war. And that is regarded as the worst U.S. strategic blunder probably of the last 80 years, or if not in history. And and the, the other thing I was thinking about, about how politicians can get into a groove and even politicians on different sides, there will be such a consensus that they won't change. And here, of course, I'm going now back to Germany. For decades, even though other countries were warning Germany, you should be less reliant on Russian gas and oil, you should be less reliant on Russian gas and oil. There was no one within the government of the left or right or center who was saying, actually, you know, they're right, we should be less reliant on Russian oil. And we get the situation which we have in Germany today. It just occurred to me that you're right, politicians also don't make good decisions. Along those lines, mm-hmm. I I have a quote from probably the, the one of the most famous sortition advocates or one of the most famous critics of electoral democracy, uh, David van Raybroek from Belgium. And we could see why he would he would have this view given all of the political um, gridlock that Belgium has had in the recent past. But um, he said, sortition-based democracy or democracy that goes beyond elections is not about creating heaven on earth. It's, it's about avoiding hell. Um, and, he's, and for him, parliamentary democracy is very close to hell. They had a period where for two years they didn't have a government, um, for example, in Belgium. So obviously his context probably expresses that. But, you know, approval rate in Congress is lower than that of gonorrhea now for about 20 years. <laughs> Maybe one point on that. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's it's also important. So we work day to day with politicians, <laughs> Also elected politicians, and I think it's um, it's very interesting to to enter that um, that, that distinction between the we, we meet extraordinary people working at the, the European Parliament, German Parliament, French Parliament, everywhere in the world. You have those people trying to, to move politics through being elected. So I think it's um, it's sometimes too easy just to to, to throw the ball at, at the people. The problem is is kind of systemic because the the thing is election as we were commenting before is a is a process by which 
if you want to move uh, politics, so have a, a position in which you want to change, uh, have a lever to change things, you need to be elected. In order to be elected, you need to have the majority. In order to have the majority, you need to promise things you are going to do. And then you have a job for a couple of years, but then you lose your job. And of course, uh, as everyone uh, on planet Earth, we want to keep our jobs because uh, keeping our jobs is interesting. It's a security, it's an income. So there is a, a level at which systemically elected um, politicians have, um, of course, a bias to be reelected. And, and even if they have the best intentions, they need to enter the game of being reelected if they want to, to go on working. So I think that's something which is very, very difficult and systemic, that is a big problem, a huge problem for decision-making if we think that part of the decision-making has to look beyond the electoral cycle of four to six years. And that's a, that's really a systemic, and they can't do anything about it. Yeah, so there is a that level. And on that, deliberative processes are pretty good, and that's one of the, the strengths of uh, sortition, is that people selected through that mean have no um, claim to say I'm here because I'm good. Uh, no, you're not. You're here because you're here. Um, and they don't have any interest in staying because it's over. When they, when they have that process, then they go out again. And that gives them a luxury, which is thinking about long term and thinking very broadly on topics. And that's a luxury they have. Uh, and so if we think about the systemic advantages of both of them, uh, parliamentary elective democracy and sortition based randomly selected groups, this is an, a huge advantage they have. Interesting. I want to turn our focus just briefly to the concept of the nation state, because when we talk about democracies these days, the average person conceives of the concept of elections in a framework of nation states. And, and this, of course, I connect to the concept of the global, and I'm not saying I agree with this framework, but the framework is that there's a global struggle now between authoritarianism, symbolized by Russia, and democracy, symbolized by Ukraine. And so this war has become symbolic about democracy in many respects, too. But what's funny about this is I heard a Ukrainian say he didn't so much care about Ukrainian democracy he would prefer to have his own corrupt politicians that he elected than to have corrupt politicians that Moscow selected. So for him, the issue was nationalism, not democracy at all, because corruption and democracy is endemic. And I thought it was an interesting way to, to think about this conflict between well, authoritarianism and democracy, but also between nationalism and democracy. So, uh, Ahmed, do you have any, any thoughts about how patriotism, nationalism go into these concepts? I, I think bringing this stuff in uh, and also about the war is just muddies the water because, um, well, because you're taking um, a particular controversy in which people are going to disagree and putting the burden on a democratic reform to 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 um, you were talking about closure before. Mm -hmm. You're putting this you're putting this burden on let's say deliberative democracy or sortition based participatory democracy to solve a political problem once and forever. 
so it, it's uh, I think it's a, it's 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 not relevant and um, it's kind of distracts from what's happening. Yeah, and especially since this has an international context and it's um, I don't think it's uh, it, it would be um, unfair to burden a a reform for giving people more power with solving these um, philosophical and geopolitical problems. So again, it's about making, uh, it's about avoiding hell, not about creating um, heaven on earth. I would um, echo David von Raybrook, but also about the, the closure aspect. In fact, one of the uh, most well-known recent books that advocates for sortition and deliberate democracy and citizen-centered and citizen-led democracy, it's called Open Democracy. This is Ellen Londemore at Yale, and you know her central idea is that we should stop looking for closure all the time and make democracy more open to points of view and more open to input. And she takes a so-called epistemic democratic perspective, meaning let's just pretend for a second that it's about processing information. Well, if you want to process information, we should not systematically bias that information and look at uh, designing better ways to process that information rather than trying to filter out everything. Because when we do science, we don't filter out everything uh, before we think, we try to take a, a more representative sample and then think. Antoine? Yeah, nation states, it's uh, it's for me uh, a source of, um, how you say, splitting. Uh, one side of me is, is always um, impressed at, at um, how powerful they can be as a unit of uh, governance, as a, a way of uh, taking collective actions. And also being a cultural unity, so it's, it's very interesting. I mean, um, it's um, fascinating. At the same time, I always have to, to remember they are not even 200 uh, years old, most of them. It's a very new construct, and it has led to so many harm and so many problems that, um, that it's, a, yeah, it's a huge challenge. And also, they have um, a key problem to face the 21st century, because if we take most of the challenges we have, uh, like climate change, uh, the governance of the internet, uh, pandemics, global pandemics, migration, uh, space, and then the future of uh, <laughs> many things at a global level, uh, they're not equipped for that. Um, if you take the climate negotiation, it's very interesting to see that uh, they have to, again, you have very impressive people in those negotiations trying to, to find a, an agreement. But they have to go back to their government each time they need to discuss something. And it's a kind of, um, of setting of governance, which is not working very well for the problem at stake. So I think there is a, a, one thing here is um, how, how can nation states enter the 21st century? That's, that's a, a big topic. And as you were asking the question, I had to remember one of my favorite book, actually, it's uh, the science fiction trilogy uh, by Kim Stanley Robinson, mm -hmm. which is called the Mars Trilogy. And it tells the story of uh, the colonization of Mars. And in one of the big topics of the book is how nation states over the course of 100 to 200 years become less and less relevant on planet Earth and on Mars. And, and how two entities 
level up in a way. And these are first global institutions like the UN, but also corporation. And in the book, uh, in the trilogy, it's uh, very interesting to see that uh, Robinson, so it's written in the 80s and 90s, so it's before internet, and, and it describes very well <clears throat> how global corporation take over uh, the role of being the, the space for the public sphere, uh, how global corporation take the, the lead uh, leadership in colonizing uh, Mars and, and working in governance, and how, how, the, how that happens. Uh, it's, it's fascinating because it's, um, it's a view uh, in the future uh, of the evolution of nation states. So for me, there is always that, uh, yeah, that split uh, in me saying, okay, they are not relevant anymore. They, it's, it's time to, to move on. Um, knowing how, how difficult that is at the same time, how, how powerful they can be to, yeah, to move things. And, and, and yeah. Yeah. The, the logic, the logic of participatory democracy lends itself as you expand from a very local town level to maybe a city level to a nation state, naturally to a global level. Why not? have citizen assemblies for human beings on the planet Earth. And that's what I was trying to kind of get at here. There's nothing that suggests to me and what either of you have said that limits a jury to a nation state. Why not have other types of global deliberative processes where you get the Homer Simpson of Australia and the Homer Simpson of uh, Belgium to uh, design a new car? Yeah. Maybe on 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 that uh, a comment. So I wanted to. So we had um, a couple of years ago. We did a citizens' jury on nuclear waste management in France. Uh, it was fascinating because we we proposed to have a group uh, with half French people and half other people because the nuclear waste management place for France, uh, which is a uh, planned, is 100 kilometers from Belgium and Germany. So we were we were saying, okay, look, <clears throat> in 200,000 years, uh, it may be that the the border between France and Germany and Belgium, it may not be the same in 200,000 years. So maybe it makes sense to, to involve people <laughs> from the other side. And it was a clear no, uh, because it was, a, it was a French process. Uh, so I think here we, we see the, the limitation of decision-making based on, on nation states. And, and, and of course, deliberation can, can scale that. And that's actually one of the, the key uh, focus of what we are doing at Mission Publique is, is scaling deliberative processes at a transnational level and global level. That's really what we want to, to explore and implement. Thank you, Antoine. That's a great point to reflect on. We have a unique opportunity now to bring a more inclusive, deliberative process to our democracies at a local, national, transnational, and even a global level, which might help us better address global issues like climate change. It's all very exciting. But this is a good point to take a break before we get to episode two, so let's summarize what we've covered. We discussed sortition and deliberation, the strengths and weaknesses of traditional democratic policymaking, be it through referendums or through elected representatives. We discussed Brexit, the war in Iraq, and German reliance on Russian gas supplies as examples of bad decision-making. We also discussed the nation state as the dominant framework for understanding relationships among people. We noted that democracy is not a problem to solve, but an ongoing process of improvement. 
there will never be an endpoint that brings us finality or closure. And we have not achieved closure in our discussion. So let's continue our deliberative process in episode two next week. Thank you so much, Antoine and Ahmed. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. It was very good. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Andy. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.